This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQB with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at paytaxeslater.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm David Baer here at KQV with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and author of three best-selling books, Retire Secure, The Roth Revolution, and now Retire Secure for Same-Sex Couples. When it comes to building retirement portfolios, how big a role does asset allocation really play in performance? To provide perspective and insight on that issue, we welcome another industry giant back to the show, Dr. Roger Ibbotson. Longtime professor in the practice of finance at Yale's University of Management, Dr. Ibbotson is also chairman and CIO of Zebra Capital Management, an equities investment and hedge fund manager. Founder and former chairman of Ibbotson & Associates, now a Morningstar company, he also serves on numerous boards, including Dimensional Fund Advisors. A prolific author, he's written dozens of articles and books, including Stocks, Bonds, Bills, and Inflation, which has become a standard reference for information about capital market returns. And with that, I'll say hello, Jim, and welcome, Dr. Ibbotson. Welcome, Roger. I'm glad to be here. Well, you've, you've gave, given us great information in the past, and it's, su- it's such an honor to have you on the show. Um, you, you know, the, some of the readers, most of our financial planner listeners probably know of your rep, well, certainly know of your reputation, and many of our lay listeners also, but um, it's just a, such, a, such an honor to have literally one of the top, if not the top, asset allocation expert in the, in the world and, and the top expert or one of the top experts on efficient markets versus inefficient markets. So um, you're, or at least one of the latest uh, pieces that you were involved in, um, published um, by the Yale School of Management. How does your theory of market shape your portfolio? And this is part of the article where you say questions about market fi- market efficiency have driven academic discussions for a long time and remain far from resolved, as evidenced by the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics, which was awarded to Eugene Fama of the University of Chicago, and then a little bit later, um, and another one to um, Robert Schiller for behavior science. So where, where do you stand? Because you're kind of an enigma, because you're both you know, actively involved with dimensional fund advisors, which is, I guess, more the efficient market theory, and Zebra Capital, where you are trying to profit from market inefficiencies. So how, how, do you, how do you reconcile those two positions? Well, of course, uh, truth is never so absolute, I guess. The truth is always somewhere in between. And actually, I've, I've had the great experience of, of uh, when I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation, my chairman at the time was, was Gene Fama. So, and, and, of course, I've been on the Dimensional Fund Advisors Board for all this time, so with, which has a, had a connection with Gene Fama over all these years. But I've also been on the Yale faculty here with, with Bob Schiller, and uh, and in fact I've even taught a few of his classes at Bob Schiller's class. And so uh, he's, he's 
my my esteemed colleague here at Yale. So I guess I've I've gotten to know both of them very well over the years, and and uh, I think they've both made wonderful contributions and certainly deserve the Nobel prizes that they have both achieved. But but I mean I I actually think you could you could actually believe in both things to some extent. And actually, I wrote a very recent article on popularity, the, the, the dimensions of popularity. It's, it's just uh, about to be published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And it sort of reconciles these things to some extent. Well, can, can, you, give us, can you give our listeners a, let's say, a, a, a lay listener summary or a conclusion? Well, think of this as, of course, uh, if you buy something, if, you, if there's a stock or an asset class that is is uh, very popular, it's going to be high priced. It's going to ha- and that means it's going to have lower returns. If you if you have uh, such a category that's less popular, either it could be a stock, or it could be an asset class. If you have it's it, the less popular it is, the lower its price, and in fact that means the higher the return. So that that explains the asset classes, for example. Why do why do stocks have much higher returns than bonds over time? Well, of course we all know that stocks are risky, much more risky than bonds, and it's that of course risk is actually very unpopular. When you have some a characteristic like that, like risk, that's very unpopular. Uh, that means that those uh, th- those kinds of assets, like stocks in this case, generally are going to be uh, going to be the price is going to be lower because of it, and it means that they're going to have higher returns. So you actually get much higher returns on stocks and bonds. But of course, it's not free because risk is unpopular, and you've got to take the extra risk. We can generalize this, though, not just to to risk. We can, and I guess if you had to take another category, the second thing that kind of stands out is liquidity. Everybody wants liquidity. They want more liquidity, and that's fine. It's great to have liquidity, but but that's something that's too popular, I guess. And so what it means is, as you get to be so liquid, the price goes up, and the returns go down. So everybody wants less risk. And they want more liquidity, but what that means is the less risk and the more liquidity you have, it means the higher the valuations and the lower the returns. Uh, and so this applies across all the basic efficient market theories. So they recognize in efficient markets, we all recognize that there's a tie-in here that uh, you should have a risk premium or you should have a liquidity premium. Uh, you should have a risk premium for things that are more risky, and you should have a liquidity premium for things that are less liquid. Uh, that's very consistent with efficient markets. We can take it further, though, and actually bring us into uh, more into Bob Schiller's world. All right. Well, let's let's finish the efficient market before we get into behavioral science, because I know, like you said, you have um, you did your paper under Gene Fama, and I'm sure it was a big thrill for you. When he won the Nobel Prize, um, now Gene Fama is obviously very active with um, Dimensional Fund Advisors, which which you are, which more or less, um, although they they have certain ways that they are trying to maximize return, but they are still not quote trying to beat the market. They're not looking at individual securities and saying, well, we think IBM is going to go up, so we're going to buy IBM, or IBM is going to go down, so we're going to sell it. 
IBM, they are trying to um, enjoy the, let's say, um, equity premium and using asset allocation, efficient market theory, etc. But basically, they're not trying to beat the market. Um, Zebra Capital, on the other hand, and, and you're on the board of this company, um, Dimensional Fund Advisors. Um, Zebra Capital, on the other hand, is trying to beat the market. So could maybe even just a, a basic explanation of what trying to beat the market is, what active investing is, might be good for for some of our listeners before we delve much further. Well, let's take the. Uh, it's probably easier to define the passive investing, which certainly uh, recognizes that different types of securities have different have different expected returns than others. So even in a passive world, you uh, you recognize that that stocks that have uh, that any kind of asset that that is more risky should have a higher return. These are more or less permanent effects. And uh, same thing with something that's that's less liquid and should have higher returns. The, or, or, or sometimes we can look at, the, say, small cap stocks that are less liquid. They tend to have these higher returns because they're less liquid. Well, these are these are permanent effects. I mean, we could we could discover we we could tell you all about it, and everybody could listen to this radio show and be uh, let the secret out that small caps tend to outperform large caps, or or value tends to beat growth. Or stocks tend to be bonds. We could, you could listen to the show, and you could recognize that truth. But even if the whole market recognizes those truth, that truth, those kind of excess returns will not go away. Those those premiums are permanent because they're sort of intrinsically. We don't like, we don't like uh, risk. We do like liquidity. And in, in the case of value stocks, actually, we. We don't like uh, the kind of companies that are value stocks, actually. They're not very exciting companies. There's usually something wrong with those companies. They're distressed or they're, or they're, uh, or, or they're basically may have poor management. There's something wrong with those companies, and we don't like them. Uh, and, and even if you told, we told you all about this and you listen to this show every week, you still wouldn't like those kind of stocks. And you, so you basically have to... Uh, incentivize people to buy those kind of stocks, and you have to give them an, an extra expected return. This is all consistent with efficient markets. That's why dimensional fund advisors, for example, uh, basically uh, buys uh, small cap or micro cap stocks, and also buys value stocks. Uh, they believe these premiums are permanent. They're not going away. They're not going away once they're discovered. Now, in contrast. An active manager is looking for much more transitory effects. They're looking for things, for characteristics that we might not temporarily like, but we, or, or we might like too much, only in, in uh, a transitory way, but we don't permanently dislike or like something. So, active management is looking for very short-term effects. Oh, they don't have to be a day or a week. They could be a year. Or two, but they're basically not permanent effects like you get in the in the premiums in the market. So efficient markets admits that there are, and, and Gene Fama always said that the efficient markets is there's two parts to it. That that uh, it's always a a prices are fair relative to something, say relative to risk or relative to liquidity. Prices are fair relative to something in efficient markets. 
this in inefficient markets with active management, you have distortions in the prices, but they're much more transitory in nature. In nature, and that's and that's the basic difference here. Whether you have these transitory mispricings or whether you have only these long-term premiums in the market. Well, let's talk for a second about the long-term premiums in the market. Um, so, for example, uh, DFA might have a higher percentage of small cap than some other um, advisors or even um, efficient um, companies, like, let's say like a Vanguard, and they might their small might be smaller. Their value might have a lower price-earnings ratio. Are you basically saying that these are in effect, permanent advantages, and that's why, for example, a DFA will outperform, say, a, a S&P 500 um, in terms of long-term results because they are investing in some of these sometimes perhaps uh, less popular areas like small cap where people are a little bit afraid or other areas where people might be afraid, say, international, etc. That's exactly what I am saying. That that uh, if you go to the areas of the market where people have some some fear or they just don't like them for one reason or another, and and, and there is something intrinsic about it, not just temporary. It's not just a fad. If there's something intrinsic about it, then they're likely to have better long-term results. Now, of course, it's kind of hard to measure a long term because it actually means quite a few years to get a long-term, they're not going to win every year. Any of these premiums are not going to pay off. Even the permanent premiums, like uh, the risk, stocks don't always beat bonds, for example. Uh, you can't count on these things. I mean, the very nature of risk is that you don't know what the result is going to be. You can, you can say on average that stocks will beat bonds. So these are permanent effects, but they only show up for those who have the patience to ride through the long term, oh, let's say that the the listener has has the patience, and for example, I have a lot of clients and and even some pretty smart people that I know that say, oh, I don't like international, or oh, I've been burned by international small companies, or I have been burned by um, smaller companies um, or small value companies. So they stay away from those companies, but actually, is what you're saying is some of those companies in the long term have outperformed the larger companies, and if you exclude those from your portfolio, that you are in effect almost asking for a lower return in the long run. If you give up something that people collectively uh, don't like, then uh, you're basically those are the kind of securities that are going to get. Higher returns, but I'd be a little bit careful about talking about international because who's the foreigner? I guess uh, there's global markets here and there's global participants, and what's international to to me might not be international to a, a German investor or a Japanese investor. Yeah, that's so, point. so it's not so clear how the international is, is going to shake out. Um, uh, it might be that we collectively are a little wary of emerging markets, say, um, the, the ones that haven't yet emerged. But but I, I don't think we could pick on, pick on a category of just being international. Okay, fair, fair enough, because I, I guess I'm just looking at it from an, Amer from an American investor. And, and the other thing that, I've, that I find 
is so so you I, I think what you're saying is um, in general markets are efficient but that there might be some opportunity to profit in effect from some market inefficiencies is that a fair characterization I think that's true. It's just a, que- it's a question of how efficient markets are. Uh, they're clearly not perfectly efficient. And uh, but but one of the nice things that is even in an efficient market, there are these premiums, which you can capture by being a long-term investor. So by picking up more, in a dimensional's case, dimensional fund advisor's case, it's, they're trying to pick up more um, more value or or more micro, more small cap stocks and and pick up the premiums that way. Uh, basically, overload your portfolio in the categories, in, in these less desirable categories, whereas the typical investor under would underinvest in those categories. Dimensional would overinvest in those categories and, 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 and get these premiums. This whole area now, by the way, you're hearing things like smart beta. It's uh, very related to that. Because smart beta is trying to also pick up the long-term premiums. It's beta because um, there are the betas uh, that are put basically coefficients in front of the premiums, and so how much uh, how much beta you have in such and such a premium is basically uh, your payoff. And smart beta strategies are trying to load up on those premiums as well. Okay, be- before we go too far, I also feel um, honor bound to say that. I am a dimensional fund advisor um, distributor, and uh, my business, or at least a large part of it, is working with dimensional fund advisors. We have a, um, a particular money manager, um, PJ Denuso, with Denuso Index Investors, and he does the asset allocation and he does the actual investing using dimensional fund advisor funds. Um, our office does tax work, social security analysis, Roth IRA conversion analysis, estate planning, etc. So when we're talking about DFA, I have to tell the audience, and out of fair disclosure, that I am not completely independent, um, although, frankly, it doesn't hurt me when you say, well, DFA outperforms because of these reasons. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that. All right, so you, you started to talk about beta, um, and... Maybe if you can maybe backtrack one one step and just maybe give a a basic definition of say alpha and beta, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about where you are going. But Break I break coming I, up here, so keep that in mind too. All right. So <laughs> so can can you give us a? I'll give you something fast. I guess with the break coming up. So yep. I'll right. say beta is a coefficient. It's you put in front of a, a premium. So if it's say a high beta, um, it means you're buying a lot of that premium. If it's a low beta, you're buying a small amount of that premium. And there can be multiple betas. There can be a beta on small caps, there could be a beta on value, or just a beta on the whole stock market. And say we think of betas over one on the stock market as being high beta, and betas less than one on the stock market as, as being low beta. But basically your return is sort of a, an additive sum of a bunch of premiums with their beta coefficients, I guess coefficient might be a tricky word, but added a, uh, um, just a sum of a bunch of premiums with a number in front of those premiums. Okay. All right. Well, that's something to think about while we take this break. 
This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. You're listening to a pre-recorded encore presentation of the Lang Money Hour with CPA and attorney James Lang. Please do not call. If you should have any questions or like more information regarding the topics discussed, please call Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 or go online to retiresecure.com. KQV listeners, would you like to get retirement planning insight directly from Jim Lang and learn how to maximize your financial future using flexible estate planning, cutting-edge IRA and retirement strategies, and low-cost index investing? On Saturday, August 23rd, the Lang Financial Group is hosting a free estate planning workshop at Wildwood Golf Club in Allison Park. The topic for the morning session, which runs from 9.30 to 11.30, is Enhanced Social Security Planning, Getting the Most from Your Benefits. Among other things, you'll learn about the seven important factors to consider when deciding how and when to claim your Social Security benefits. The afternoon session from 1 to 3 is titled, America's Most Flexible Tax-Favored Estate Plan for Traditional Married Couples. Among other topics, you'll learn about Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan that has been praised by sources such as the Wall Street Journal, Kiplinger's, and Financial Planning Magazine. At 3.15, Jim will present a 30-minute review of What Makes More Money, the S&P 500, or Active Money Managers. Using Nobel Prize-winning research, he'll explain the differences between active and index management and show how to organize your retirement investment for the strongest returns. Attendees can take one, two, or all three sessions. They'll also get a free copy of Jim's best-selling book, Retire Secure as well as the option of a no-cost follow-up meeting. Light refreshments will be served, and spouses are encouraged to attend. There's no charge for the Saturday, August 23rd workshop at Wildwood Golf Club in Allison Park, but space is limited and often fills to capacity. To reserve your place, call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. Or for more information visit their website at www.paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQB AM 1410. For all your financial needs, turn to the Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill. For more information, visit online at paytaxeslater.com. Let's talk more smart money. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour with Jim Lang and Dr. Roger Ibbotson. Um, Roger, you were talking before about uh, Eugene Fama that you had literally um, studied, studied with him and you've known him for years and he's been on the board. And he's basically an efficient market guy, but he recognizes, let's say, some of the unpopular areas, for example, small cap or uh, value, and has been able to get premiums by investing in them. What, what, was, what was new when in the article it says for his groundbreaking work on the efficient market hypothesis? What, what was new that Eugene Fama um, was presumably awarded the Nobel Prize for, or was he awarded the Nobel Prize for the work he's been doing all these years? Well, it's for all those years, but actually the efficient market hypothesis is, I think he coined the word. He, I think he uh, wrote the pay, first papers on the subject. I mean, there was there was random walk theory before that, where they, pe- people were talking about stock prices 
seemed to behave in a random walk. They didn't seem to be very predictable, and you couldn't easily use technical analysis in order to predict their pattern of how they might behave. But he broadened this to the idea that prices were fair at all times. He basically invented the notion of efficient capital markets. Of course, people talked about very similar things, uh, but he really brought it out into the open and made it concise and, and gave it a definition and said that that uh, efficient markets, you can't, can't look at it in itself, so you have to combine it with with uh, something else like like risk, and then he usually talked about everything in the context of risk premiums, and so uh, there's uh, basically uh, I, I think you could call Gene Fama the inventor inventor of the concept of efficient markets. So uh, clearly, there are many many things afterwards, uh, but he but he basically invented efficient markets in in the late 60s, and so and then he and then he d- developed many ways of testing whether markets were efficient, too. And and, and basically, uh, surprisingly, most of these results showed that markets were relatively high efficiency. Well, he's always been one of my great heroes. On the other hand, John Bogle is also. And John Bogle does not necessarily um, do as much in terms of asset allocation and some of the uh, smaller companies and some of the value-oriented companies. And frankly, uh, DFA, if you follow a recommended DFA portfolio, you have done better than the, let's say, the S&P or even most Vanguard portfolios. Do you think that this is, uh, and they're both, I I think it's fair to characterize John Bogle as an efficient market um, practitioner. Is is it fair to say that, that they have a lot in common, but maybe Eugene Fama is going a little bit further with, some of the small cap and less popular ideas um, to and and value oriented to get greater returns. Gene Fama and and Jack Bogle are uh, obviously both of the both of their work both of the things they do are very are are uh, consistent with efficient markets. And Gene Fama, I guess what I would say, invented efficient markets. Jack Bogle was one of the first people to come out with index funds. And, uh, and of course, in Vanguard, uh, they basically have now uh, pretty very strong, maybe dominating, they're the largest uh, mutual fund investor, in fact, they're really dominating the index fund space. So, uh, Jack Bogle, I would say, I would say first of all, Gene Fama is an empiricist, and but also has developed theories. Jack Bogle is somebody who uh, uh, has applied these things directly. Um, Gene Fama applies them through dimensional fund advisors. Mm-hmm. But but yes, uh, it is also true that Gene Fama, uh, in applying efficient markets, uh, has noticed these different premiums. And uh, he didn't discover these premiums necessarily, but he has noticed them and advocated that these premiums, and he's usually called these things risk premiums, although later, inform- I think the later results nowadays show that uh, a lot, not, not most of them are not necessarily associated with at least the standard definitions of risk, like standard deviation. But they are premiums, and I'm saying more generally what their premiums are for things people don't like in some form. Mm-hmm. And, with, and and me to me it's more whether they permanently don't like it that's what makes a, a premium out of it if they only temporarily don't like it that just makes something mispriced okay 
Well, speaking speaking of things mispriced, um, let's let's take and 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 by the way, I'm I'm an efficient market fan. I think Gene Farmer's work is phenomenal, and I genuinely believe that what he is doing with DFA um, is probably for most people the best choice there is. And then you combine it with some of my tax strategies, Social Security, Roth, etc. That's what we think is the highest level of service. But to be fair, there's um, there are people like you who recognize all this as well as anybody, but have companies who are um, trying to take advantage of, of some of the inefficiencies. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Zebra Capital and your work there, and um, if that would be appropriate for any of our listeners. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's the right thing for your listeners because you're. Uh, I will say our investors are much more institutional, and where we can get these. They can be nimble enough in order to pick up these extra, extra I guess, inefficiencies. I, I, I want to say up front here, I think uh, you and your firm, I mean, I don't know that much about your firm, but at least I know the concepts behind it and dimensional fund advisors. I think you're actually providing a great service to certainly the retail investor, especially, who who uh, who – Basically, avoiding some of the higher fees and being diversified and avoiding taxes, reducing, at least not avoiding, but but reducing your tax burdens and uh, basically structuring portfolios in this particular way, I think that gets you uh, 90% of the way there. Um, whether you want to try to beat the market, that's a, another thing. And, and usually it's the institutional investors who have the edge on doing that because the individual investors um, would not be nimble enough or would have to pay taxes if they were actually do, doing a lot of trading in order to accomplish that. So uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating the listeners on this show invest in, in Zebra Capital um, uh, because I, it may not be tax efficient, for example. Um, but, but I do think we have the capability of of discovering some of these short-term inefficiencies. And, and one of the ways we do that is uh, we're looking at a trading volume. The companies that are if, – if, if you see a lot of uh, turnover and trading volume in a company, that's a very good indication that people are really interested in that company. And, and actually, the more it's traded – the more interested they are in it, the more popular it is, they, the more overpriced they get. People tend to basically want to buy the cocktail party stocks, but those are the worst stocks to buy. So if you just leave it to your own devices here, most of the um, individuals are going to actually move in precisely the wrong direction because they want to buy the most popular stocks. They want to buy the stocks that everybody else is talking about. And I'm saying... Really, the way to have higher returns is to buy a lot of stocks that people have never heard of. Well, first of all, thanks for the, the, the very nice compliment. You also um, gave me a great testimonial for my book, Retire Secure. Um, but so, so but let, let, let's talk about trying to beat the market because, you know, there's, there's quite a few listeners out there who, to be fair, um, are maybe not the most sophisticated people. They don't have... PhDs in finance, and they might they might read an article, and they do engage. I I fear in cocktail talk, and they they read Money Magazine or something like that, 
and they pick their own stocks, and they sometimes they often don't really keep track of how well they have done. And do people like that have much of a chance of beating, um, say, an efficient market theory, whether it be a Vanguard or a DFA or something like that? Because there are a lot of do-it-yourself listeners out there, and I want to know if it is sound for, let's call it a part-time person, not well-trained, not spending a lot of time on this. Is that a reasonable thing for him to be actively choosing um, and buying and selling stocks? Well, the market itself, relative to the market, it's a zero-sum game. For every dollar that beats the market, for every dollar uh, or 1% of return that beats the market, a dollar return, there's a you've got to have the same uh, negative return relative to the market on the other side. So beating the market is a zero-sum game. It's sort of like playing poker. It's it's a, Clearly, poker is a zero-sum game. But it's actually a negative-sum game in the sense that you have to um, pay commissions, you have to pay fees, things like that, to tr- even try to play the game. So, again, it is like poker. If you want to get into a, a uh, casino poker game, you have to pay some fees to get in. You have to pay... pay uh, uh, basically pay the house something to play, uh, but if you're a good poker player, you can still come out ahead. And like we know that we've watched these TV shows about poker and all that. Some of these star poker players actually can make a living playing poker. And so you that's a zero-sum game, too. Now, what you really have to think about, though, is would you like to enter a po- would you pay some money to enter a, po- a poker game with what you know at the moment you know uh, most of us would feel we'd be fleeced in that kind of a poker game playing with a lot of experts well we have the same sort of danger in playing poker uh that we might playing poker with a bunch of experts trying to beat the market because we're trying to beat the market or our competition is a bunch of experts we have to pay to play and ultimately, uh, we're we're probably playing against professionals where we're less apt to to know as much about this. Like they sometimes say about poker, one of the amusing things they might say is, when you're in the poker game, who's the uh, who's the sap in the game here? If you don't know who it is, it's probably you. You know, so so uh, here you in the market, it's the same sort of thing. You're if, if you think just you can't just expect to outperform the market with with uh, conventional knowledge because you ultimately have to be better than the average expert effectively I think I've heard Jim use that same line a few times <laughs> I, I have actually all right but let, let's 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 maybe give Yale some credit too because it's not just University of Chicago who, who are win, winning Nobel prizes um, Yale's Robert Schiller um, won a Nobel Prize for his fundamental contributions to behavioral science, could, and which points to the irrationality and inefficiency inefficiencies in the markets. Could we talk a little bit about Robert Schiller's work as as one of your colleagues? Yeah, well, let me say just in general, there are all kinds of distortions in the market. Actually, it's not it's not that hard to find, especially after the fact, the kinds of distortions. I mean, he talked. Bob Schiller was famous in the technology bubble, basically warning everybody about how how stocks were so uh, 
way overpriced. Now, not not that it was so easy to take advantage of that because he recognized it maybe several years early. Uh, but but uh, certainly he recognized that the prices were were way out of line, and of course, then they collapsed. The bubble burst, and the, and, and and they collapsed. And then he came along and recognized the real estate bubble, and uh, and rec- he recognized that several years early too. But basically, when the mortgage bubble collapsed in in 2008, um, he had warned us several years beforehand that the real estate was going to was due for a collapse. So uh, he's he's actually uh, has had tremendous foresight in recognizing the two biggest drops we've had in the last couple of decades. Now, his, now has he missed? Because I know Harry Dent likes to brag about the ones that he's hit, but he has had some pretty famous misses, or maybe not ones that he would want to advertise. But is it fair to say that that uh, Robert Schiller came up with a couple winners and didn't blow it and just completely um, miss things? Or did he just have a couple winners? And maybe we should listen to him. He had only a couple. He didn't really have losers, but I will say it would have been difficult to follow the strategy because he would have been out of stocks in 97, 98, 99, uh, three of the best years of the stock market because he recognized this so early. In the real estate market, the real estate was actually booming under the Bush administration, uh, under W. Bush's administration in the the six – uh, three basically, the real estate was booming two thousand three, four, five, six, seven before it collapsed, and uh, so you would have missed. Uh, Bob Schiller was talking about this early in every, both cases, so you would have actually had some pretty. You would have missed out on some very good returns along the way. So yes, he. It's not that he was wrong. He's early. He recognizes things, and it takes a while for the market to recognize these. These distortions and it's not so easy to to just listen to Bob Schiller and make a lot of money from what he does so uh, it's uh, but basically he has recognized some of the, a couple of the major distortions he's he's got different ways of measuring it like the CAPE C-A-P-E but it's a, basically a 10 year average earnings he likes to look at earnings over the cycle he's he's actually uh, uh uh, I, I basically one of the real leaders in behavioral finance, and so, and, and at the micro level, there's all sorts of distortions too. But what I would say about behavioral finance is that basically they're recognizing things that are get too popular, or, or basically that are unpopular. The things that are get too popular, like technology stocks in the 90s, uh, they recognize that those things are going to collapse, and and they do collapse. It's just that. Uh, you can't exactly pick the time when they do collapse. And, and ultimately, though, the way to make money in the market, if you want to beat the market, is you have to be a contrarian. You have to buy the kinds of stocks that other people don't want. All right. Well, at this time, we should take our one final break, and we'll come back. We have a question, actually, from James from Ohio who has written in. This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. KQV listeners. 
Would you like to get retirement planning insights directly from Jim Lang and learn how to maximize your financial future using flexible estate planning, cutting-edge IRA and retirement strategies, and low-cost index investing? On Saturday, August 23rd, the Lang Financial Group is hosting a free estate planning workshop at Wildwood Golf Club in Allison Park. The topic for the morning session, which runs from 9.30 to 11.30, is enhanced social security planning, getting the most from your benefits. Among other things, you'll learn about the seven important factors to consider when deciding how and when to claim your social security benefits. The afternoon session from 1 to 3 is titled, America's Most Flexible Tax-Favored Estate Plan for Traditional Married Couples. Among other topics, you'll learn about Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan that has been praised by sources such as the Wall Street Journal, Kiplinger's, and Financial Planning Magazine. At 3.15, Jim will present a 30-minute review of What Makes More Money, the S&P 500, or Active Money Managers. Using Nobel Prize-winning research, he'll explain the differences between active and index management and show how to organize your retirement investment for the strongest returns. Attendees can take one, two, or all three sessions. They'll also get a free copy of Jim's best-selling book, Retire Secure, as well as the option of a no-cost follow-up meeting. Light refreshments will be served, and spouses are encouraged to attend. There's no charge for the Saturday, August 23rd workshop at Wildwood Golf Club in Allison Park, but space is limited and often fills to capacity. To reserve your place, call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. Or for more information, visit their website at www.paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com. You're listening to a pre-recorded encore presentation of the Lang Money Hour with CPA and attorney James Lang. Please do not call. If you should have any questions or like more information regarding the topics discussed, please call Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 or go online to retiresecure.com. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQB AM 1410. For all your financial needs, turn to the Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill. For more information, visit online at paytaxeslater.com. Let's talk more smart money. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour with Dr. Roger Ibbotson and Jim Lang. And as I mentioned, we have a question James from Ohio asks, Dr. Ibbotson, is it prudent for a retiree receiving a federal retirement annuity and a Social Security and Social Security equal to 70 to 80 percent of pre-retirement income to invest 90 percent of his 401k in low-cost index funds? And following up, he asks, will DFA advisors set up an IRA for a retiree with 90 percent invested in equity index funds? Okay, well, I can't speak for what dimensional fund advisors will will we'll right. recommend there exactly but but generally of course as you get in, in retirement you don't want to be 100% equities the, the theory would say in fact that um it's it really comes from human capital theory and actually another Nobel prize winner Gary Becker is sort of one of the great creators of human thinking about human capital uh, he was also from the University of Chicago, and as I say, he just died, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And anyway, Gary, Gary Becker basically said, you've got two kinds of assets. One, assets. one kind of assets is your human capital, which is all your earning power, and the other kind of asset you have is your, is your financial assets. And when you're young, you don't have very much financial assets, but you've got all this human capital earning power. And if you've got a stable job, 
uh, you you're likely to you 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 actually your human capital is relatively low risk, and you should be taking a lot of risk in your financial capital. So young people should be loading up on on basically equities, perhaps 100% equities. But as you get older and into retirement, you don't your human capital is really dissipated, but you've got financial capital, and but your financial capital uh, now. It's not balanced by the lower risk part of your human capital. It's basically that's gone, so you'd need to be more diversified. I would say 90% equities is too much in equities for our listener here, um, unless you're quite wealthy and it's not really you're not really dependent upon on the markets here. Uh, but but basically, even though stocks will outperform bonds most likely over the long term, um, if you're really dependent on the uh, on your wealth here to get you through the retirement, uh, you, you really want to, especially in the early retirement years, uh, uh, actually protect protect your retirement base, and, and 90% is too high. Well, uh, um, far be it for me to disagree with one of the top asset expert asset allocation experts in the world. The only thing that I would add to that, though, is the question specifically does say. He has a federal pension that is presumably guaranteed, and he has Social Security that, that together add up to um, most of his, I think the question was 75 or 80 percent of his needs. For To me, somebody like that, while I, don't, I, well, I would agree with Roger that maybe 90 percent in equities would be too high, but that person might have a different asset allocation than somebody that has say, no pension and a small Social Security. Is that fair, Roger? Oh, absolutely. And I and I probably overlooked the part that is, he's so heavily covered. Maybe he doesn't have the human capital anymore, but he has the residual payoff of that from his Social Security and his pension and his, I guess, a, a defined benefit pension plan that's uh, protecting him. So, uh, and it, it presumably, uh, I don't know how much wealth he has, but but uh, if he's not so dependent upon the wealth to actually get him through the retirement, then you certainly can take more risk with that wealth. And, which, and of course, the more risk you take, the higher returns, and they actually, of course, in this case, are probably more for your beneficiaries. All right. Well, let's let's Here. talk about asset allocation. It would be it would be literally a crime to have one of the top asset allocation experts in the world. Um, and not talk about asset allocation a little bit more. Um, I think a lot of people um, probably understand a little bit about percentages of stocks and bonds and, and may or may not be appropriately invested in those. But could we talk a little bit about asset allocation and diversification and the different asset classes, say, within um, a stock portfolio or the different bonds or fixed income categories within a fixed-income portfolio? Uh, generally, of course, I would say asset allocation would be the most important decision you want to put together, and of course that's what, uh, that's what you're providing for them, those uh, combinations. Now, you want to get as diversified a portfolio as you can. That's probably basically getting diversified, uh, keeping your tax load down, keeping your costs down, and perhaps getting some extra return from beating the market. Uh, th those are the the big four, I guess. Um, but uh, I would say uh, uh, um, 
they're all very important, but basically asset allocation is trying to make your, your portfolio as diversified as possible. And a way to do that is have different kinds of stocks in the portfolio but not, and different kinds of assets in the portfolio. But in the, within the stock market, you don't want to be just in one kind of stocks, but you'd like to be in in large and small and and, and value with higher return, but presumably some growth stocks too to help you diversify it. But um, so comb- combinations of these things in the bond market, you, well, depending on how what your tax status is, you probably would need some municipal bonds, or uh, you you want to take some uh, longer horizon risk. You need to probably take some lower grade bonds in the portfolio. You want to have a mixture of this, and probably international, both stocks and bonds, because especially bonds with international bonds, uh, these basically you're buying these currencies uh, different. They're paying off in different currencies, and that uh, diversifies your portfolio. So what you're trying to do in this portfolio is buy a combination of a a bunch of different things that particularly are not so correlated with each other, and that that's what gives you the gives you that diversification. Yeah, and and, and something you said earlier on on the reader's que- on the reader's question or the listener's question is that you said and sometimes you should think about maybe the next generation. So I have, I have a lot of clients who, um, to put it nicely, are not some of the great spenders of the world. It's whether you want to call it depression-era mentality or whatever it might be. Um, they're just not great spenders relative to the amount of money that they have. And they sometimes don't think about the next generation. So, for example, if you have a million-dollar portfolio and your Social Security is $30,000 and you're only spending... Sixty or seventy thousand dollars, maybe it might be appropriate to have, let's say, a higher portfolio than somebody that ha- that is a higher percentage of stocks, as opposed to bonds or fixed income. Is it is that fair to consider, let's say, the next or even the next two generations in those decisions, on the theory that if you can cover yourself, why not have more money going down to the next two generations? Well, it's clear that if you buy more, if you can, if you're definitely covered through your retirement, you're basically generating uh, wealth for the next generations, and and uh, of course, the actually the inheritance tax uh, thresholds are pretty high. They're five thousand a person. A married couple has has ten thousand. I mean, not five thousand, five million, uh, and, and 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 ten million basically thresholds before you're paying any federal inheritance tax. You might be paying state inheritance taxes, but but you can actually give quite a bit of money to the next generations. Of course, that that, that gets to be, uh, I guess, a very personal matter as to what you wonder why you, sometimes people have I've heard the joke like, you should be flying first, either you better be flying first class or your kids will be. So it's a question. I'm not saying we all want to spend that money because spending money doesn't necessarily make us happy. But you you do want to think about what uh, what you're leaving to your next generation and whether they would be using that money wisely or actually it might in some cases actually may make them less prone to uh, develop their own careers. They just get lazy and feel that they've got enough anyway. 
So those are complicated questions that when you get the generation shift. But from a pure, pure tax angle, I guess we can answer all these things from a technical perspective. And certainly we can leave more to the next generation by taking on more risk. Um, uh, and uh, so it seems like a reasonable thing to do. But, it's, of course, it's, it gets to the, the individuals involved here as to what the appropriate actions are. And, and finally, can the... Uh... The last question that I have that I think we have about maybe three minutes for, or even two minutes, is um, what are, what are, what's, what's next for Roger Ibbotson? What, what's, what's the, you know, you, you've been pro, enormously prolific, um, had this fabulous career, but it's not like you're home on the golf course hanging out. You're always doing something. So what, what's next for Roger? Well, we are. I'm definitely building Zebra Capital up into a uh, hope, ideally, into a large money money management firm. Uh, I'm I'm a, I'm continuing on. I guess I I teach much less nowadays, but I'm I'm a as a Yale professor. It's been a wonderful experience, and and actually, I, I'm really excited about this whole field of. Uh, behavioral finance, I want to say, because, and, and the whole idea of, of popularity and, and how you can actually uh, try to understand all the different relationships in the market from both perspectives of, of the premiums in the market and the mispricings. And trying, so I'm actually trying to understand how the markets work, and, and I think it has great implica- implications for everybody. And so... Uh, it's a really an amazing field. One of the most, I mean, yes, we're handling money all the time, but it's also finance and investments is so intellectually stimulating, and uh, discoveries are made all the time, and I'm so happy to be a part of that. And could you give our listeners um, resources of how they could, say, take a look at Zebra Capital or even um, some of the work you're doing in behavioral finance? Well, I, I would suggest you go to our website, www.zebracapital.com. Okay, and that's, I'm going to say it one more time, and then we'll have to leave. Okay, so that's www.zebracapital.com. We're in Connecticut, and uh, we're a global money manager. Well, and with that, we'll say thanks to Dr. Roger Ibbotson. Thanks to Alex Shacklis, our KQV in studio producer, and Amanda Cassidy Swinesburg, the Lang Financial Group Program Coordinator. As always, you can hear an encore broadcast of this show at 9.05 this Sunday morning here on KQV, and you can access the audio archive of past shows, including written transcripts, on the Lang Financial Group website, www.paytaxeslater.com. Finally, please join us for the next edition of the Lang Money Hour on Wednesday, August 20th at 7.05 when we'll welcome Larry Swedrow back to the show. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 and reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person or visit paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com.